You know, when you're just walking through a book of the Bible together, teaching through a book like we're doing these days in the book of Acts, I'm just a firm believer that you let the text take you wherever it goes. And sometimes the text takes you to very interesting places, like today, for example. And so uh, to kind of set the tone and create the backdrop for our message today, I'd like you to reach into your worship folder and pull out the study guide, if you would. And uh, I'm going to ask all of us to read aloud together the uh, two verses that are in that little box near the top there of the front side of your study guide. And then I'm going to pray for us, okay? So let's read these aloud together. You got them there? Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's 2 Timothy 2.19. And then the next one. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. 1 Peter 4.17. And so now, Almighty God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would take this account, this story that we're going to be walking through this morning and apply it personally and individually to each person in this room right where they're at today, as only you can. For I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'd like for you to, to consider two effects, two effects that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ will have on the hearts of people who truly believe it. We've taught here for many years that the gospel contains power. The gospel has power within itself to change the human heart, to transform our core motivations, and to stimulate new desires in us, what Jonathan Edwards called holy affections. So one effect, one powerful effect of believing the gospel is a tightening of the heart's attachment to people, okay? And a second effect is a loosening of the heart's attachment to things, to stuff. Or said another way, truly resting in what Christ has done for us, that's what believing the gospel is, resting in what Christ has done for us, will free us up to love people with a pure love that's not looking for anything in return, and it will also free us from seeking satisfaction in money and in the things that money can buy. So, you following me here? Loving people more, loving things less, two effects that the gospel believed will have on the human heart. Now, we see these two effects right there in the passage in the book of Acts that Alan spoke from last weekend. And so I want us to look at it again. Uh, Acts 4.32, it said, Now the full number of those who believed, believed what? Believed the gospel, were of one heart and soul. There's the first effect. And... No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That's the second effect. But they had everything in common. So you see this? The gospel, the good news that these people believed, was doing its work. It was having its, its effect 
in them, and the effect was twofold. They were being knit closer together in loving relationship with each other, and they were releasing their grip on their stuff so that others might be blessed. It goes on to say in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So that's some serious generosity, wouldn't you agree? Big stuff here. Generosity fueled by the gospel was, was happening and growing and it was contagious. So what, a, what an attractive community of Christians this was becoming. What a winsome, beautiful community of believers this church was. And even though it was quite large, numbering perhaps 20,000 people at this time, even so, individuals, individual Christians with needs were not being overlooked. They were not falling through the cracks or being neglected. Everyone was being cared for by each other. And I like to call that gospel community. And if you've ever experienced gospel community, you know it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be a part of. Now, Luke is the writer here. He's the writer of the book of Acts. And as he's unfolding this story for us, he singles out a particular fellow in that church who was a, a great example of this generosity. And his name was Joseph. Apparently, Joseph owned a, a parcel of land, a, a field, and one day he felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to sell it and then to give all of the proceeds from that sale to the apostles so they could distribute it as needed within the church. And so that's what he did. And the apostles took note of how, how blessed all the people were by Joseph's generosity that they gave him a nickname and it stuck. And the nickname was Barnabas, 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 which means son of encouragement, because that's what this man was becoming through his generosity from the spirit who lived in him, a great encourager of other people, Barnabas. And Barnabas is going to appear a lot in the book of Acts, and he would eventually become a mentor to another guy that we're all very thankful for, named Paul, who was Saul. So a lot of new names being given out in the book of Acts. This is where Barnabas is first mentioned, and it's in the, this context of a thriving community of gospel-soaked, gospel-saturated believers who are allowing Christ's love for them to leak out and to spill out onto others. It's a great story. But then Luke changes his tone. And he mentions another fellow in the church and his wife, and it's obvious he means to draw a sharp contrast between this couple and Barnabas. Whereas Barnabas would go down in church history as a great Christian with a life worth emulating, the names Ananias and Sapphira would forever be associated in church history with hypocrisy and with greed. And so right smack in the middle of this beautiful portrait of Christian community, a dark smudge appears. Yet another first in the book of Acts. We've seen many firsts, and here 
we're introduced to the first flagrant sin in the church. And this sin was so grievous to the Lord that it resulted in another first, the first instance of church discipline. The very first instance of church discipline. So let's look into this story together. It begins with the sinful deception of this man named Ananias. Acts chapter 5 and verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. The sinful deception of Ananias. Now maybe in your mind you're asking, why did they do it? I mean, everything was going so good. Why would they do something to spoil what God was doing there? Or maybe your mind goes to another place. Maybe in your mind you're asking, what was so wrong about this? What was so wrong about what they did? I mean, so what? If they only gave a percentage of the sale price and not the whole amount. At least they gave some of it. Why was that so bad? Now most Bible scholars agree that that something that's not stated explicitly here in the text but is implied in the context, is this. Apparently, this couple had made a pledge, possibly in public, a pledge that they intended to sell this parcel of land, this piece of property, and then give all of the proceeds to the Lord's work, 100% of it. Now, they'd seen other people do this, right? They'd probably observed Barnabas doing this, and they evidently felt prompted to do the same thing. Now, they didn't have to do it. There was no constraint here coming from the leadership of the church or from the other members. Peter makes that very clear in verse 4. But something was pulling on their hearts to to do this, to make this pledge, and so they did. Maybe they were watching when Barnabas brought his gift and they saw the recognition that Barnabas was given in the new name and such, and maybe they thought, wow, wow. I mean, that would feel pretty good to have the apostles and all of the people saying nice things about us. Wouldn't it be great to be well thought of in this church and highly regarded and highly esteemed here? Wouldn't it be awesome to be spoken of in the same breath as Barnabas? To be looked up to, to have some prestige, some standing here in this church. Perhaps they thought, maybe they'll even put a plaque up on the wall with our names on it, our new names on it. Wouldn't that be awesome? We don't know if it was their plan all along to keep back some of the proceeds, or if in the the moment of parting with that money, as they were looking at that pile of money, they got weak knees and started thinking about all the stuff they could buy with that money. But what we do know is this, what they ended up doing was deceptive. It was pretentious, pretending. It was hypocritical. And it might not have gotten exposed except for one thing. Peter was there, and Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to see right through their charade. And that's the second thing we encounter, the spiritual discernment from Peter, verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, when you still owned it, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, I can just envision this scene in my mind, can't you? There's the saints, the believers are gathered there in, in the assembly, and here comes Ananias stepping forward, and he's got his gift there in his, in his hands, and he's ready to deliver it to the apostles and, and ready to hear some words of commendation, right, for being so generous. Oh, most honorable apostle Peter, I come now and I hereby present to you the entire proceeds from the sale of our land. Please use this as you see fit for the good of my fellow brothers and sisters in this church. Big smile. So very proud of being so magnanimous and of course eager to hear those words of commendation. But instead of hearing that, here's what Ananias heard. Liar. Liar. You're lying, Ananias. You're lying. You played right into the hands of the father of lies. Instead of being filled by the Holy Spirit, Ananias, you let Satan fill you with deception and with greed. Ananias, no one forced you to sell your property. No one coerced you into promising to give the money away. We're not that kind of community here. You know that. We're a community of grace. Even after you sold it, the money was still yours to do with as you pleased, but you made a pledge. You made a pledge, a solemn pledge to give it all to God. And now you're reneging on that while pretending to fulfill it. Ananias, you're a a hypocrite. You're a deceiver. You're a Satan-filled, glory-craving phony, and it is not going to go well for you. calling him out, wasn't he? Right there. And by the way, did you note this? In verse 3, Peter says that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says that Ananias lied to God. So he's, he's either saying, you lied to the Holy Spirit and you lied to God, or he's saying, You lied to the Holy Spirit, and that is lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. And you're going to have to decide where you, what you believe about that, but I know where I land. I am one who believes that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Holy Trinity and that he is God, God the Spirit. And so there you have it, Ananias' sinful deception exposed through the spiritual discernment of Peter who saw right through him. And then God enters the picture. And it is devastating. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. I guess so. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Wow, that's some swift discipline, wouldn't you agree? And the Bible elsewhere extols the virtues of swift discipline. 
And God here, the perfect Father, is modeling that for us. And this is devastating, and I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, why did God act so severely in this particular instance, but not in others that I'm aware of? Maybe you've been in church for a while. Maybe you've heard stories about ushers stealing, for example, from the offering, and they're still alive. Or maybe you've heard about pastors, too many of these stories, right? Pastors running off with their assistant or committing adultery or having multiple affairs and God didn't kill them. So why so severe here with Ananias? And it's a good question. And to me, the only satisfying answer in my mind is that the Almighty God in his infinite wisdom decided that this was the right time to issue a warning, a very clear warning to this infant, fledgling church right at the outset of its existence, a warning that sin is very serious and God is not one to be trifled with. He's a holy God. By the way, I remind you that it's God's church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's not even the elders of of this church. It's not our church. It's God's church. He purchased it with his own blood. And God does not want his church filled with pretentious hypocrites who outwardly are praising God, outwardly praising God, but inwardly they crave the praise of men. They crave prestige. They view the church as a place to get noticed. People who view the church as an arena in which to be impressive. That's an abomination to God. He wants his son, Jesus, to receive all the praise. Jesus, because of his great sacrificial cross-bearing love, he wants Jesus to be the one praised in the church. Amen? So he strikes Ananias dead. This was a severe warning, and I'm telling you, it was very effective. Maybe you've read this very sobering verse in 1 John 5.16 and wondered what it referred to. Listen to this verse. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. Whatever else that verse refers to, we can be pretty sure it refers to what Ananias did. His was a sin that led to his death. And we need to know there are such sins. So Ananias crumples to the ground. And Luke tells us there were some young men there, maybe some teenage men there in the room when all of this went down with Ananias. Do you think that watching this man fall to the floor with a thud left an impression on these young guys? Do you think they went, whoa, what was that? says they got up, these young guys got up, they carried Ananias' lifeless body outside and buried it. So there was a new ministry that started that day, one I hope we never have to have here in this church. But they're not done. They're going to have more work to do because God's not done yet. There's still more house cleaning to do. It is time for judgment to begin at the house of God, as Peter would write later. There was an accomplice in this crime, 
There was spousal duplicity, you might say, by Sapphira. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. Now, three hours? What was she doing in those three? There's a church service going on. She's running three hours late? What was she doing? Was she doing her hair or what? Somebody last night piped up and said she was out shopping because they had kept back part of the money, right? So, I don't know. Anyway, three hours. His wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And he named the figure. And she said, yes, for so much. Verse 9, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, so they just finished burying this man, they come in, there's another one. They found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Sapphira. Sapphira, her name means sapphire. Beautiful gemstone, right? But this act was anything but beautiful. Her duplicity is exposed. She ends up meeting the same fate as her husband and receiving the same discipline from God as he did. Peter confronts her and says, You and your husband conspired together to test the spirit, and that was a big mistake. Teenage guys are coming for you too. And she dies. So a fourth sin of this couple is now identified here. They loved money, right? They kept back a portion. They loved money. They kept back some for themselves. They loved the praise of people. They lied. And now it says they tested the Spirit. They dishonored the Holy Spirit by testing Him. And you say, well, how so? How so? Well, maybe Ananias and Sapphira were totally oblivious to the presence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' church. Maybe that was it. Maybe they just didn't have an appreciation for the fact that when God's people gather together to worship Jesus, that God is here through the Holy Spirit like He is right now. Maybe they just took no thought of that. Or... Maybe they dishonored God's spirit by imagining that he didn't really know what was in their heart, that he didn't really know their thoughts, and that they could act a certain way outwardly while somehow shielding the spirit from knowing what was going on in their hearts, that vanity and that greed, how foolish that is to think that any, for anyone to think they can hide something from God. My gracious, that's, that's the height of foolishness, isn't it? Or, I tend to think this might be the case, maybe their view of God's grace was distorted. Maybe, like many in our day, they thought, well, you know, God is a God of grace. And he's pretty lenient with his kids. So if we mess up, even deliberately, even intentionally, hey, we're already forgiven in Christ. It's all good. We know that God likes to show off his grace, and uh, maybe he can just showcase that with us. 
So let's go ahead and make a big deal about how generous we're being. And if we keep a little bit back for ourselves, no biggie. God will probably cover for us. If that was the case, they didn't realize that having that mindset was testing the Spirit of God. And he was offended by it. It's a costly error. And so that second body gets hauled out. And then Luke records everybody's reaction. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church. This is the second time he says this now. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Sanctified dread. And everybody. Just like that. Just like that, a holy reverence for the God who really does hate sin swept over everybody. It sobered them up, don't you think? I imagine they were thinking, who's next? <laughs> this isn't going well. The trajectory of this church service is going downhill quickly. It sobered them up, both inside the church and outside the church. Can you imagine some of the conversations out there? Hey, you better think twice about joining up with that group. It could be hazardous to your health. Dangerous. We have this phrase, right? Putting the fear of God in people. This put the fear of God in people. Really did. Now, this is what could be called a pruning or a purging or a purifying of God's church. It was God demonstrating in an unmistakable way how serious he is about his church being pure. And so you, there you have it, the very first instance of church discipline carried out by God himself. Now what comes next is really interesting to me because Luke basically picks up and resumes the narrative that he left off back in chapter 4. Remember, back then everything was going great guns. The church was having a ball and people's lives were being changed. But then there was this power outage like the lines had been cut. Things went dark. But now that God had dealt with sin in the camp and holy fear was restored in his church, it's like there was a reconnection in the voltage, the spiritual voltage starts to flow again. Verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, which was an elevated, a large elevated platform over on one side of the temple courtyard there. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So the apostles resumed their ministry of performing miracles and healing people and it sounds like it's even more intensified supernatural deeds performed by the apostles had to be awesome don't you think healings and such it says unbelievers stayed away from those christians meetings for a while anyway because <laughs> they'd heard it could get dangerous in there they still had high regard for all their friends who had become christians and who had joined up with this movement, but for the time being, they decided to just keep a safe distance. You know, we, we want to stay alive. Plus, there were 20,000 people already there in the worship service, so it probably would have been hard to find a seat anyway. And that's the story. 
can we gain from this? What, what's in here for us? What, what's, what could benefit us? And, and here are a few of my observations and conclusions from the story of Ananias and Sapphira. First, I think you might agree with this, cultivating a holy fear of God is a healthy thing. It could save your life. Cultivating a holy fear of God is a healthy thing. Now the Bible says, you know this, the fear of the Lord is the what? The beginning, thank you for that enthusiasm, the beginning of wisdom. It's the start of being wise to fear God. To have a holy reverence for God and His power and His hatred for sin and His judgment on sin. It's the beginning of wisdom. That tells me it's the height of foolishness to trifle with God or take Him lightly. You know, I thought about this and I thought holy reverence for God is almost completely gone in our culture. It's almost gone. So if it's going to be found anywhere, it needs to be found in Jesus' church, among his people. If we don't learn anything else from the untimely deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, let's learn that God hates sin. He hates it. It's, it, it, it's, it grates on him. It's contrary to his holy nature. And he especially hates it when he finds it residing comfortably in the hearts of the very people he paid such a high price to set free from it. Cultivating a holy fear of God is a healthy thing. And I wonder today, do you have a holy fear of God? I'm telling you, he's able to instill that in your life. He is able to do that. It's not a bad thing. I'm not talking about fear of you know, shrinking away from the Heavenly Father. I'm talking about just having a healthy reverential respect for who God is and understanding his position relative to our position. Second, I think this is obvious in the story, the power of the church is connected to the purity in the church. Power and purity are connected. That's what we saw, right? Unrepentant sin cuts the power lines. So you've had that happen at your house, you know, everything just, all the fans go off and the AC goes off and it's not a good thing. If sin is not dealt with, it impairs the activity of God's spirit because it grieves him. It grieves him to see what the Son of God suffered for being tolerated and maybe even celebrated among God's people. It grieves him deeply. Undealt with sin devastates the power of the church and the witness of the church. Let me ask, do you want to see more power in this church? I do. More of God's activity, more of the Spirit's activity. Don't you want to see this place vibrating and pulsating with the power of God? If you want that, then repent of the sins that have captivated your soul and bound you up. Repent of grieving the Spirit of God. Repent of taking the cross of Jesus Christ so lightly that you would dabble in the things that Jesus died to free you from. Seek again purity of heart. Purity, I mean, is, is purity even in vogue in our culture anymore? 
Does anybody value purity anymore? Does anyone? Purity of heart, purity of intentions, purity of motives, purity of lifestyle. Church, this ought to be found in our lives. Not out of some legalistic, top-down, authoritative edict that's being given, but because of our love for Christ, the purest one. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure. Purity produces power. That flow of the like we're conduits, right? Pipelines cleaned out. Cleaned out. That's what I'm praying today will be for us. Cleaning out. So the power of God is flowing out into our city again and to our neighbors. Next. Confronting hypocrisy. Confronting hypocrisy in others is admittedly risky and uncomfortable. But those who care deeply for the health and witness of the whole church will do it. How many of you are, are, are among those who are like, I don't like conflict, I don't like confrontation, let other people do that? How many of you are like that? It's common, it's common. But I think, you know, I think we have to ask this question that doesn't get asked often enough. What's at stake? I mean, what's really at stake if I'm like, eh, you know, whatever. And I, I'm so concerned about having people's approval of me or feeling good about our relationship that I'm unwilling to confront, especially flagrant, obvious sin in a brother or sister. What's at stake? What power outage is at stake in the whole body if we're not watching over each other's lives? Not legalistically, you know, that's not us, right? with genuine care and concern, not just for the individual, but for the whole body, the witness of the whole church. Yes, this falls to church leaders, for sure, but also to the entire body of Christians. We're to be watching out for and watching over each other's lives. Now, none of us are apostles. None of us have the gifts that Peter or John had. We don't have their authority, apostolic authority, like like they did, but we're still charged with the responsibility for keeping Jesus' church as pure as possible. All of us. I got to thinking about our process of people coming into this church, and so here at New Life, for as long as I've been here, which is since the beginning, before we accept anybody into membership, even if you know, they've gone through the other steps, before they stand up in front of you and are presented before you as... New members, they sit in an office with a ministry leader and they get to share their stories and so forth. And one of the last questions that's asked those folks is this. Before we present you to the congregation, is there anything in your life, your lifestyle currently, that should give us pause in this process? Is there anything going on in your lifestyle that should cause us to put the brakes on here so that we don't knowingly bring into the congregation flagrant sin. And when I'm doing that interview with that person, I usually say something like, you know, what email am I going to get on Thursday, the, you know, the Thursday after the Sunday, you're standing in front of the church that says, Pastor Steve, you let so-and-so in the church? Didn't you know that they have 12 children in eight states by five different women? 
Is there anything in your life? And that scares some people. That, that, that scares some people. Whoa. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. We don't mean, we're not trying to be mean or nasty about it. But if that scares some people away from joining, then so be it. We have to be concerned for the purity of the church. Now, we're not talking about sinless perfection here. If sinless perfection was a requirement for membership, we would have zero members. I wouldn't be able to get into this church. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this flagrant, blatant, unrepented of lifestyle sins that cast reproach on the name of Christ and drags his name through the mud. We can't knowingly invite that into the congregation of believers. But look, the ongoing purity of the church is all of our responsibility, right? All of our responsibility. It's an important one, very important. What's at stake? I'll just add, you know, this is not something we, we're all high and mighty, feeling superior to some other person, you know, coming down hard on them. No, this is gently, but with genuine concern. I see this in your life. Do you see it? All right. Next, getting the gospel, you know how I like to say this, getting the gospel down deep in your bones matters. That comes also out of this story. It matters for you. It matters for other people. It matters for your church. Tim Keller has stated, this guy I listen to a lot, that at the root of all sin is a failure to fully believe the gospel. I think he's right. You know, when we, we talk about sins, we tend to think about outward behaviors, right? Stealing, lying, cheating, committing adultery, not paying your taxes, whatever. And those are sins, those are behavioral things, but, but, but they have a, that's the fruit, they have a root. Sin has to be traced down to its root. And when you, when you get down deep into your soul, what you find is that your sins are rooted in unbelief. Why do I sin? And I do sin. You say, you're a pastor. You sin? Yeah, I'm not proud of it. I regret it. I hope I'm sinning less and less. I hope God is sanctifying me, but I, I do, do sin at times. Why? Isn't it because at the root I'm failing to be satisfied with all that God is for me in Jesus Christ? I've stimulated other appetites, but failed to let my soul's deepest cravings be satisfied in my relationship with Jesus? Isn't that why I sin? I'm looking for something. I'm clawing for something. Instead of feasting at the buffet of Jesus' love for me, I'm picking at a three-day-old McDonald's burger. This is nasty. When I could be feasting on outback prime rib. Thomas Chalmers called it the expulsive power of a new affection. I call it Outback Eats McDonald's any day of the week. <laughs> Why would I go back to that when I got this? My soul craves satisfaction just like yours does. We were made that way. But the, the, the craving of our souls, the deepest craving, is only satisfied in a rich relationship with Jesus. Isn't that true? And when I'm neglecting that, other things start to look appealing and enticing to me. And there I am, taking a bite out of a three-day-old McDonald's burger again. 
and I know better. I've been duped into seeking short-lived, temporary, paltry satisfaction offered by phony substitute saviors. They always leave me empty, and I should know better by now. Am I the only one? Am I the only one? That's what's underneath my sins. You see, purity not only produces power, but purity comes from power. And that power to be pure, power to be pure, is a gift of the gospel only available to those who feast on Christ, who eat his flesh and drink his blood and consume him so that not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. You say, that's weird language. I say that's spiritual language that Bible writers used and Jesus himself used when he wanted to describe that deep abiding union with himself that he purchased for us. Didn't he say that? Unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, you have no part with me. What was he talking about? He was talking about getting way down in there where you live. Lastly, I take this right out of the scriptures. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If only, if only Ananias and Sapphira had stopped for a moment, had just kind of felt that check in their spirit. You know what I'm talking about? If only they had stopped for a moment to evaluate their hearts, to judge themselves. If only they had let the Spirit of God clear their minds long enough for them to step back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) That seemed like a good idea at the time, but now with some clear-headed thinking, I don't think that's such a good idea that act like we're giving the whole thing and keeping back part for ourselves. Let's can that idea before it ruins our lives. If only they had judged themselves, as Paul would put it, they wouldn't have been judged so severely by God. Maybe they would have gotten to see their grandchildren. Maybe they would have lived to a ripe old age. But they failed to evaluate themselves and it cost them dearly. I think God put this in the Bible because he wants to impress these truths on our hearts. Will you let that happen today? Will you let these things land on your heart? You know, when we were preparing this, it made sense to me that just there seemed to be an alignment here with communion. And so in a few moments... We're going to take communion together, and I'm going to ask our ushers to go ahead and prepare, start getting prepared to serve the rest of us. And I'm asking you right now to prepare your heart to take communion. And it seems fitting to me to help you be prepared by reading Paul's admonitions concerning the Lord's table found in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, the Lord's table has multiple significance, but One of them is, it is a time of self-examination. This time, right now. So please listen carefully to these words. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul writes this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so, examined, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the body of Jesus, yes, and the body of Jesus, discerning how their activities impact the whole body, Anyone who does that eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Here it is. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so I join you today in examining my heart. I ask you to do the same. Here's some things to consider before you partake. Do you find in your own heart today some secret sin that needs to be confessed? Do it. Confess it. Now, to the Lord. Don't partake of the Lord's table until you do. Have you failed, perhaps, to see how your actions in private have actually had an effect on the health of the entire body of believers. Have you failed to understand that? If so, repent of this. Turn away from it. Are you at odds with someone else in the church? Have you gotten crosswise with someone and let anger and maybe bitterness and resentment seep into your soul? I would counsel you this way. If they're here in the room right now, go to them and seek their forgiveness for whatever your part is in that rift. Then partake of the Lord's table. If that person's not here, my estimation is you'd be wise to not partake of the Lord's table until you have made things right. From the story today, if you are guilty of pretending trying to look good, of trying to keep your image polished, seeking praise and honor from other people, if you have failed to keep a pledge that you made to God, or if you've been stingy with your money, clutching your your possessions and your, your money, or some other sin the Holy Spirit is making you aware of right now, I counsel you to admit it, to own it, to confess it, to repent of it, to turn away from it and run into the waiting arms of Jesus, your Savior, and claim his blood and then partake. Consume Jesus. Take him in. Let let your eating of the bread and drinking of the cup symbolize this desire to take Jesus all the way down into 
innermost parts of your being. Let his fullness satisfy the deepest cravings of your heart. And maybe even create new ones for his glory. Lord, prepare us now. I pray that you would clean up this church today. Prune us, purge us, purify us, that your power might flow through us in full measure once again for the sake of our families, the sake of our neighbors, the sake of our city. Lord, may these moments be a time of cleansing, of confessing. Lord, maybe some in this room today need to, need to come and confess to a prayer partner. Maybe it's not enough for them to just kind of secretly confess it, but they need to humble themselves and come and say, this has been in my life and God has convicted me of it and now I'm owning it and turning from it. Lord, give them the grace to do that. May no one in this room partake of your table in an unworthy manner and end up being judged for it. Thank you for the body and blood of your son. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.